0: Way to do this let me show you a better way
1: hi folks this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the survival podcast As always one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't today is April the 14th 2020. And this is episode 2639 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday, but we do have an interview today. I've kind of doubled up on interviews during this period of time. It's helping me move through the week a little bit better. Um, Man, I got a great interview for you guys today. A lot of times I'm doing these uh, intro segments before the interview. In this case, I'm doing it after. Um, And I got real excited when I saw who I was going to be interviewing today. Not because I knew who it was. Didn't know who this person was at all. I got excited because it's a, a young person, we'll call her a kid, right, 14 years old, who is a passionate gardener, uh, growing just a tremendous amount of food in a fairly small area on an urban lot, who is, like, big time into tomatoes. 14-year-old girl into tomatoes, growing over 130 tomato varieties every year. And I knew it would be a good interview. But you're also kind of like, well... You know, I, I look at it this way: like when 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 you get kids on, it's kind of like sometimes you have like an episode of one of those reality shows where the person's singing and it's a kid and they sing pretty good, but if they were not a kid, you would they wouldn't stand out at all. So you wonder what you're gonna get. I told Emma when we got done, honest to God, told her this is one of the most well prepared. She was one of the most well prepared guests I've ever had. On the show, in fact, almost too well prepared. The interview's only about thirty minutes long, and that's because all the setup questions I had, all eight of them, she had it down to the exact answer, exactly on point, entertaining, engaging, but so specific that usually, you know, shows continually go, you know, an hour plus, and with an hour of interview time, we only ended with thirty minutes. But man, it is thirty minutes of gold. And uh, those of you that are kind of tough on younger people at times, and I am too, uh, boy, I'll tell you, I bet you some of y'all this this gal's accomplishment at 14 and some of y'all have at 40. She's just awesome, and we'll have her on in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our uh, two sponsors of the day today. Sponsor day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Through tough times and not-so-tough times, man, they have been with us all the way going back to 2009, uh, 2009, this is 2020, and they are still a sponsor of the show. I, 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 I one time that I think that it's a record for sponsoring a podcast. There is somebody who's had a sponsor longer than us, but I bet you, I bet you we win that race in the marathon that is the, the whole thing. Uh, they, they, they're just an awesome company. They have everything you could need for your prepping from the practical to the tactical. And everything in between, you find it all at SafeCastle dot com. Another long term sponsor came on board just a couple months after SafeCastle. Still with us, uh, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason with his website Directive twenty one dot com. You know, I think Jeff is just a terrible terrible at marketing and branding. He's the Berkey Guy with a website called Directive twenty one. He still hasn't bought the Birky Guy dot com, and I. Yeah. And when you go to a trade show and he's there, he has a Berkey banner up, but not the Berkey guy, not the... Uh, just, uh, and it's just the su- Survival Solutions or whatever his actual company name. It, it's all over the map. But when it comes to getting a Berkey, <laughs> you want to go to Directive 21, you want to get it from the Berkey guy. When it comes to parts for your Berkey, you want to go to Directive 21 and get it from the Berkey guy. Why would you get it from anybody else but the Berkey guy? Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, with his website at Directive21.com. With that... Um, Let's get on into the topic today. A little bit of time before we bring a guest on, yet I wanted to talk to you about our quote of the day, and um, it's by a, a gal named Phil, uh, Phyllis Grissom Thoreau, who I don't know anything about, and I didn't even bother looking her up. So um, I just was looking for quotes on gardening today, so we're going to talk about growing tomatoes and gardening in urban situations and things like that. And this one just really got my attention when I was, you know, kind of browsing various quotes on gardening. She said, I think this is what hooks want on gardening. It is the closest one can come to being present at creation. I, I take that two entirely different ways. If we're talking about the biblical story of creation, of course, uh, God made the world and placed Adam and Eve in a garden. And they, they, they were set in that garden to tend that garden. And I guess that would be one thing that we could take from that. But Taking it more at at a broader view that's not specific to uh, people that uh, practice that particular faith and thinking about it more of the creation, no matter how that creation occurred. We, as people, I've always seen us as co-creators. Co-creators in the universe, co-creators on the planet, especially when we're engaged in agricultural pursuits. And I don't mean in some... Major mystical way or some new age way. I mean, that when we actually take a piece of ground and change the texture and the the, uh, profile of the soil, we take small plants or small seeds and we place them in there and we cultivate them. We literally bring into existence life forms that would not exist without us. Now, that seed or that little plant holds life in it. We're not creating life, but we're creating life forms. If a tomato is left to itself, maybe one or two seeds will grow out of it. But we can take and guarantee that you know of 100 seeds, 90 or more will become little plants and will grow and produce new fruit. We can control their shape, and we can then take, uh, like you'll hear, hear Emma and I talk about today at times, and do crosses that are intentional and create entirely new hybrid forms. And if we work with those long enough, we can turn them into new heirloom forms. And when we garden, we, we are literally participating in creation itself. I think that the the reason that some people have a problem, and I don't think this is in conflict with any religious beliefs, by the way, um, but I think that mainly we think of creation as either religious and God said, "Let there be light," or the Big Bang scientifically, and then that was creation and everything was created. I, I don't think creation works that way. I think creation's a lot more like a dimmer switch, and it's far from turned all the way to its apex. It's something that is ongoing and continuing through processes, whether they be guided by the hand of humans or guided by the forces of evolution and guided by the forces of, of atrophy over time and entropy over time in uh, the expansion and contractions of the universe itself. It's all an ongoing thing. And when we garden in some tiny little way, some tiny little piece, We're part of that ongoing process of actually steering and managing and guiding creation itself so that when we stand in our gardens and we create our gardens, we are literally creating new forms or forms of life that would not exist without us. We're also removing some forms of life, and we are guiding and training and conditioning that area to produce so that it can feed us both nutritionally and feed us spiritually uh, and emotionally, because who doesn't like the beauty of a garden? It's it's a really interesting thing. And I, that's what I got from this quote by uh, Phyllis Thoreau. And again, I'm not really sure who she is or what she's all about. Maybe I'll check in there and see if she has anything else interesting to say. But man, I like that. I think this is what hooks one on gardening is the closest one can come to being present at creation. I think it's why... When introduced properly to young people, it's kind of like a contagion, and we talk we use the word contagion a lot during this pandemic, but it's kind of like a contagion in the greatest way possible. One can become infected with something that is malicious or, or bad for us, whether that be a, become infected with something like a virus or a bacteria, or it become infected with a habit or an addiction. That can be very counterproductive to our lives. Well, equally, we can become infected by something, specifically a hobby or an addiction or a passion, that is actually incredibly positive for our lives. And it really is like an infection because it starts out really small, like this little thing. You know, for me, honestly, I've always been a prepper, but one day I saw a documentary on YouTube about preppers, and it was kind of the extreme version of preppers, not anything about what I'm about. But when I saw that it put a thought in, in me that maybe people were interested in preparedness and maybe they would be interested in it um maybe they would be interested in it if it was actually presented a calm, rational, common sense manner that eventually I decided to call modern survival. That little that little infection, that little first infection hit me. And then along the way, as I was still driving to work back and forth every day in my car, I would listen to talk radio and want to just smash the radio. But one day, Glenn Beck said a little bit about preparedness, just a little bit, maybe like 30 seconds, and I thought, I wish he'd say more about that. And each day that I drove to work wanting to smash the radio and yelling at it, I kept waiting to hear a little bit more about preparedness. And I think over a week, maybe one time, he kind of sort of mentioned it again, and then it just kind of went away again. And I thought, I have this inkling that people want to know more about this and I want to know more about this. The next thing you know, I'm doing the Survival Podcast and it's June of 2008 and it is the only thing professionally that I've done for more than a couple of years and I've done it now, what is it? They're almost 13 years. Almost 13 years that I've, I've done the Survival Podcast. From that one Little initial infection. Well, another thing y'all have seen me do is from the very beginning of the show, all the way back in 2008 till now, you've watched me grow food. And the vast majority of my life, I've grown food. I've grown peppers and tomatoes and eggplants and weird stuff that I've told you about that you probably wouldn't even know about without this show. Because it's a passion of mine. But very much like our guests we're about to bring on, Emma Breg- Biggs, it all started in a garden... In two different ways. It started in gardens with my grandmother on my mother's side in Florida that was mostly flowers and stuff like that, learning about insects. And I always thought all that stuff was cool. And then, you know, actually, I started growing food before anybody taught me to grow food. Because I was like, well, how do you get this? And, you know, that grows in the ground. You mean like we grow flowers? Yeah. So all of a sudden, I was planting carrots and beans in my grandmother's backyard. One of my first gardens was actually a garden for quail. In her backyard, I started putting bird seed out some of it started sprouting. I was like, really? So I started growing all these different bird seeds and the quail were eating it. But in, in that time, I also spent time in Pennsylvania during my summers with my grandfather from my dad's side. And they gardened and they taught me to garden. And when I eventually moved there, I, I ran this garden them for a number of years before I left for the Army because they needed food. Not because they wanted food, because they needed food. It was a, a method of subsistence that went along with hunting and gathering. And all of that put that little tiny infection in me. And today I can't see my life without some component of it, of growing vegetables and and fruits and flowers and herbs that I can use for food and fibers and medicines. It's literally a part of my being at this point because of that one little infection. Well, our guest that we're about to bring on right now, Emma Biggs, was infected in a very similar way. We'll be talking about that in just a minute. She started doing some garden chores for her father. And next thing you know, she's, she's taking over everything and clamoring for more space, growing stuff on the roof, growing stuff in the driveway, and growing over 130 different tomato varieties. How does that happen? And what does it lead to? And how can a 14 year old already be the author of two books? We're about to find out all of that more. How can you grow a tomato under a black walnut tree that kills tomatoes? Emma can do it. Emma and her dad did it. So, with that, without further ado, hi, hey Emma. Welcome to the Survival Podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me on the show.
1: I was, like, really excited when I got your uh, guest application for, like, three separate reasons. One, we've got a youngster here. Uh, I believe you're 14 yeah. uh, years old. That's awesome. I love seeing kids get into stuff. Two, it's on gardening. And then three, you've done something extreme with uh, growing a hundred and thirty Tomato varieties, which I think is awesome, and I think that it's also one of the reasons I like to see young people get involved in stuff like this because you tell a person it's like 50 to grow 130 tomatoes, like ah. You tell a kid like, okay, sure. You tell them ah, it's not going to work. Then like, I don't care. They just do it. So I'm mm-hmm. uh, really excited to have you on today. What I want to know is how did you, how did you get involved with gardening uh, in the first place, and then into tomatoes from there?
2: Yeah, well, it all started with my dad, and my dad is a writer and a speaker, all about gardening and farming. And so ever since I was little, he'd take me out to the garden and get me to do simple things like pulling carrots and planting seeds. And I loved it so much, so much. I just loved to get my hands dirty. And as I grew up, it was always part of my life. And so I kept doing that. And slowly I kept taking over more and more of the garden. And so he always took me to some of the events that he'd do. He'd speak and he'd write And one of the people that he knew was a lady named Linda Crago, and she has an heirloom tomato farm in Niagara, Ontario. And so he took me with her to her giant tomato plant sale, and she has grown thousands of tomato varieties, and she has hundreds of varieties at the sale, and you just go and you can buy plants and talk to her. And he took me there. And before that, I knew that maybe, okay, there's probably about 20 tomato varieties, but... Going there and meeting her and realizing that there's over 10,000 known tomato varieties and seeing all the diversity, it got me so excited. And that day, I came home with 58 varieties of tomatoes, and it's just skyrocketed since
1: then. That's awesome. So um, you have a like a city lot. You don't have like – you're not like on a farm or something like that. So when when somebody hears something like 130 varieties, okay, that's a minimum of 130 plants, right? That's at least 130 plants. So – How do you fit all of that into a city lot?
2: Yeah, we've had a really hard time trying to fit all these tomatoes in because every year I just want to grow more and more. So we've taken spaces that you wouldn't think of using to grow, and we've turned them into spaces that can be full of life. And so we garden in containers on our garage rooftop, in straw bales on our driveway. And then another big challenge that I faced was a giant black walnut tree in my neighbor's yard. And so it overhangs part of our yard. And for the listeners that don't know, Juglone will poison tomato plants and anything in that family and kill them. And so we had to struggle and find a way to grow tomatoes in the back of our yard where that tree is too. And so we've just been taking those spaces that would otherwise be usable and turning them into these um, great places for growing.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the rooftop thing, because that's something that I've, I've been really excited about, taking a look at the landscape as a whole, uh, more and more rooftop gardens. It's a very common thing, actually, in the developing world where people have less land and uh, don't waste resources the way we maybe do here. But it's starting to catch on commercially. It's starting to catch on with, with folks in the United States, Canada, et cetera. Uh, how exactly did you take that approach?
2: Yeah, well, we used to live in a smaller house and a small bungalow. And then when we moved to our current house, our garage rooftop had a flat roof. And so my dad was always trying to fit in more things. And so um, when we renovated our house, he made our garage roof stronger and he got it all ready. He put a ton of containers up there and pathways. And now it's a space where we can grow tons of different plants we love to grow things like peppers and tomatoes even some subtropical stuff up there because they just love the heat and so we took this unusable space and now it's amazing and our plants actually do a lot better on our garage rooftop than they do on the ground
1: that's just really interesting and where exactly are you at
2: we're in toronto
1: toronto okay so the heat really is beneficial where like It's a reverse here. We the biggest asset we have in our area is shade, uh partial huh? shade because I'm in Dallas-Fort Worth, so like yeah, we get real intense sun during the summer. Um and you're growing in your driveway. I don't know if you know this but driveways are usually like, you know, asphalt or concrete. So, um how do, how do you grow there?
2: Yeah, ours is asphalt and it's surprisingly long. Um, it's about maybe 75 feet long. It's kind of crazy, much bigger than anyone would need for two cars. And so we looked at the space and it gets quite a bit of sun and we thought of the heat that radiates off that asphalt. And then we learned about straw bale gardening. Now that was something that we are really keen on growing. And so we ordered a truckload of straw bales from a farmer. They dropped them off at our house and we set them up on our driveway. And so straw meals are a really great growing container because they're not permanent. You can put them there in the summer, grow in them, and then at the end of the season, take them away, compost them, use them as mulch. And so we've been doing that for, I think this is our third year.
1: That's that's really cool. And how, how well is that going? I mean, obviously it must be doing pretty well because you don't tend to keep doing things that don't work well.
2: Yeah, it's been going really well. I mean, um anywhere that we can fit in plants is amazing but if i can put 20 bales on my driveway i can fit in 40 more tomato plants so i don't plan on stopping anytime soon
1: very cool so um there's kind of two trains of thought with tomatoes one is you kind of let them sprawl out the way that you know a natural plant would and the other one is you you train them and stake them what what do you do
2: i train all of my tomatoes um lots of people that I know in the country they don't train their tomatoes and it works great. But for me there's just no way I could let my tomatoes go free and fit in as many plants as I do. So I've caged tomatoes in the past. I've um mostly now I grow them up trellises and so I've been setting up trellis systems for all of my plants and for me it seems to be the best way to fit them all into my backyard.
1: Yeah, I've I've seen like some of the like greenhouse grow operations where they have tomatoes, they like they they grow them to the top of the greenhouse. And then they actually train the vine back down and then back up and then back down. And you see these things. It looks like a tree trunk on the bottom. And it's like, you know, 20, 20 additions of that vine. Mm-hmm. And so that vertical space becomes incredibly important. I would have a hard time needing to do that here. I usually have my tomatoes succumb to. Uh, various blights and things like that late in the season. Do you have problems with diseases or anything like that? And If so, how have you approached uh, dealing with them?
2: Yeah, In previous years, I've had different years, it varies. I've had years where it's been pretty bad with blight and things like that. Last year was actually pretty good though. I had very little disease on my plants and one of the things that I like to do to prevent that is just to prune lots of the lower leaves off the tomatoes near the soil so that we don't Um, we reduce the risk of getting soil borne diseases moving onto the plants and so we'll prune those lower leaves and just thin them out a bit and so it increases air circulation between the plants and it also helps to lower the risk of those soil borne diseases.
1: Cool, cool. So have you noticed any difference with different varieties of tomatoes as far as being more resistant to some of that stuff And, and what are some of your favorite varieties to grow?
2: Yeah, well, different varieties have different disease resistances. Um, I can't think of any that come to mind because I grow mostly open pollinated and lots of heirlooms. And so most of the ones that I've grown don't have a ton of disease resistance. And that's not what I look for since it's never the main thing that bugs me. I'm always looking for varieties that look weird or they have a weird story behind them. And so, um, so many come to mind when you say favorites. There's this one I really like. It's a variety called Sunrise Bumblebee. And it's a small cherry tomato, and it's yellow with red stripes. And it's just absolutely delicious, incredibly productive, vigorous plants. And it also has a thicker skin, so it doesn't crack like a lot of cherry tomatoes. So that's definitely near the top of my list. Um, Let's see. Another great one is a variety called Florentine Beauty. And it's a large beefsteak tomato. It's a vibrant yellow color, and it's ribbed. And it's very meaty, very delicious. And it looks absolutely incredible.
1: Have you, have you done anything with like any of the indigo varieties or anything like
0: that?
2: Yeah, I grew a variety. I think it was indigo sun a couple years ago. That was a really nice one. Um, I've never grown indigo rose, but I think it's pretty similar.
1: What do you do with all these tomatoes? I mean, um, you know, I grow a good 16 plants a year of tomatoes. I grow a ton of stuff, but I grow about 16 plants a year of tomatoes, mostly cherry tomatoes and I get, even with blight taking me out by late summer, where I just, it's not worth it anymore. I, I cut all the green ones and let them ripen and just plant something else for the fall. Um, that's a lot of tomatoes. I end up, you know, just fresh and then I dehydrate probably eight to ten jars, uh, big ball jars okay. of, and that's a lot of tomatoes. I can't even imagine a hundred. 200 tomato plants and what I would do... What do you do with all of them?
2: Yeah, well, we eat a lot of tomatoes. I eat tomato (laughs) salad practically every day in the summer. We eat tons of tomato sauce. My dad will make massive batches and put them in the freezer. Um, Our neighbors are very lucky, that's for sure. They Mm -hmm. get a lot of tomatoes. And I have to say the squirrels actually eat a lot, which is very disappointing. (laughs) But I guess it's good that I grow so many because... It gives them a chance to enjoy some and still leave me some as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I know you—you know—you have a book. You speak. Um, you, you clearly are kind of following in, in your father's footsteps a little bit here. Is there any other way that maybe you're monetizing this, uh, like selling plants or varieties or seeds, or uh, do you have any plans maybe uh, as you get a little older for this like to be uh, anchored in some way that you can kind of make a living?
2: Yeah, well, I have been doing mostly what my dad does. I've been giving lots of different speak, uh, doing lots of different speaking gigs and, um, sharing my passion with people. And along the way, if I can make a few dollars and pay off my seed debt, that's kind of the goal for now. Maybe save up enough money to go to a university or college eventually. And I have been selling plants in the spring as well. So I grow a ton of extra plants because I'm always worried since I'm only growing one plant of each variety in my garden that if that one plant dies then I have no backup and so I grow three or four of each variety and so I got tons of extras I sell plants I started selling seeds as well this past year so just trying to make enough money that I can pay off for all the seeds that. I get
1: that's really cool do you, do you think maybe like farming is in your future or maybe plant breeding and developing new varieties or anything like that
2: Yeah, well, I was really interested in market gardening for a season. I was full-on thinking about, well, maybe I should give that a try and looking it up and reading tons of books. Um, I've kind of moved a bit away from that now, but now the next thing I have been thinking about is maybe trying tomato breeding. And so I think I just love playing around in the garden, trying all these new things.
1: I have to imagine that you have friendly volunteers show up. Have you had anything like just grow out of the soil and you let it grow and it's been any kind of a surprise in what you ended up with or anything like that
2: um for well for tomato varieties since I grow my tomato plants so close together they're normally only about a foot apart yeah and I'm training them pretty intensely and so sometimes I get some cross-pollination and so I'll get really weird results so I've had tomatoes that turn end up looking nothing like they should look like (laughs) and I'm hoping to just grow them out and see what I get that's one another project for this year is maybe um, using those crosses that happened on their own and growing them out and maybe having my own variety.
1: I think that would be cool, and I think like just with that much together, you have to get some unique crosses, and it would be cool to also play along with, uh, you know, kind of watching those blossoms and, and manually doing some cross pollination, so you know what your cross is. Uh, and then, you know, excluding more pollen from that, tagging that in some way. That's something I'm playing around a lot with going into this year with peppers. I'm, I'm kind of with peppers the way you are with tomatoes, though not to the sheer number of varieties, but, um, it, it's, it's interesting. Every, every variety of everything that all of us grow with very few exceptions, uh, was, that's how we got it. It, everything is somewhere in its history no matter how much we call an heirloom today a hybrid um, mm-hmm. there's a few plants like you know i grow lamb's quarters as a vegetable that's it is what it is right but every pepper every tomato every eggplant is far away from its wild relation at this point or its wild ancestor at this point and it just seems like there's a tremendous variety there i have something um when we get off there, if uh, you can send an email to my wife who does all the bookings and stuff for me, I'll send you some up. I've had some tomato seeds from Saudi Arabia. That's, oh wow! That's all I know. Like this guy was over there on a deployment for a while, and some guy that he knew that was a local had a garden, and he took a tomato and harvested seed out of it, and that's that's about all I know. But like there there are these varieties of tomatoes from all over the world, and you just it's kind of like you know the Forrest Gump chocolate box. You don't know what you're going to get until you open it type thing. And it just yeah. seems like there's a tremendous opportunity there. Um, and maybe what doesn't look good actually tastes better in many instances is what i found with tomatoes.
2: Yeah, well, I've had people say that they think a tomato is ugly because it's brown or it's a dark purple <laughs> or it's a weird shape. And I'm thinking, are you crazy? I love the look of all these tomatoes. I, that's what really got me so excited about growing them.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I've got I'm, I've got your website up, and you've got a tray out there with just this massive variety. And you know, we look at the commercial market, and some of them are odd shapes, some of them have cracks or whatever. Like, we have totally gone away from what actually makes food have quality in America and North America, honestly, uh, to me. Where those are like, that's the kind of stuff I grew up growing with my grandfather in his garden, like. And and if you ended up with something that was an oddball, it was like, oh, we need to save this and see what happens if we plant it again. Because, you know, he knew full well that F2 uh, generation would be different than your first-generation hybrid. And we ended up with some really cool stuff. Sadly, you know, I went away to the Army by the time I came back. He was gone. All his seeds were gone. That was all lost. But I think that's – I know you do work with, like, seed savers people and stuff like that. Like, it's important that when we find these things, we actually preserve them.
2: Yeah, I've had so much fun saving seeds for my tomatoes. It's my goal to try and save seeds for every tomato I grow. And so I have tons of boxes of tomato seeds. And whenever I go out to events, um, up here in Canada, we have events called Seedy Saturdays. So basically weekend events, and it's like big seed swap events. And so I was at a Seedy Saturday, and someone came up to me, and they said, I have this tomato and it's um, from my whole my hometown in Poland, and she said she moved here and she couldn't find the tomato and so but then she found someone with the tomato, she got the seeds, and it's apparently it looks like a raspberry. And so I think sharing your all these neat tomato seeds and being part of that community is so much of being a gardener is saving all these varieties as well
1: where do you where do you like I know you have a lot of unusual varieties now, Where do you find them? You know are you just like going out to every website you can find and buying tomato seeds like when you say seed that I kind of get that's at least part of the answer, but I bet there's more
2: yeah, I look at all tons of different seed companies and I look for varieties that I want to grow. I go to different seed ex, seed swaps seed exchanges, and I get seeds from there and then also this friend Linda Crago, that I mentioned before. Every year at our tomato plant sale, I come home with at least twenty or thirty new tomato varieties, and I just save seeds from those. And so that's probably where I get my bulk of new tomato varieties each year.
1: And do you like have a process where you like, you know, you do have a spatial limitation here? Like there is a point where you can't grow a thousand varieties on the spot that you're on. Do you have like a process where you go like, okay, since I want to grow these twenty new ones this year? Like these, these are, I'm gonna have to give something up. Do you have a process? Like how do you, how do you like you know, kill some of your children kind of and go like I'm not gonna grow you this year.
2: Yeah, it's so hard for <laughs> me to choose. This year, what I did is I went through all the tomato seed that I had. I think I had about maybe 250 varieties, um, and I just went through and I was like, okay, what are my top varieties? And I went through and I started with 10. These are my top 10 must grow, and then I added a few more and kept going. And I knew that my limit was about 130 varieties, and so I kept going, and then I left space for a few varieties from Linda and a few that I wanted to order. And so I just had to pick and choose my favorites. But the good thing about that is since tomato seeds can last so long, that if I don't grow them for the next five years, I can grow those seeds out afterwards, and they'll most likely still be viable, still be able to germinate, and then I can still have that seed.
1: Absolutely, I I know they last a long time. Some of my grandfather's stuff, he would be planting ten-year-old seed. I'm like, why are you planting new stuff? Ah, it's just as good, you know. And he had, he had a pretty terrible, um, I guess, uh, care ethic when it came to you know taking care of seed. Like he had one of the old-school cardboard cigar boxes with just manila envelopes, and it like sat in the Cabinet out in our shed, and it was, you know, Pennsylvania winters and then Pennsylvania summers, extreme swings of temperature and all. And you know, ten-year-old seed, he'd still get like eighty percent germination rate out of it. It's it's amazing. I actually know a person that uh, got hold of a some tomato seed that was found, and I would love to get some myself underneath a porch at Monticello at Thomas Jefferson's place. Wow! And it ended up that that seed was viable like not all of it but they were able to actually grow a significant portion of it and recover this tomato. It's it's if I knew what varieties it's probably on their website cuz they sell all that stuff from back then but like for that to last you know 150 years 200 years or something like that it's just insane but it it did
2: yeah, I've heard of people going through, like, their parents' freezer, their grandparents' freezer, and this they find seed that's been in there, maybe tomato seed that's been in there for, like, 50 years, and they try and grow it, and it's, like, perfect germination. So that's I think amazing. tomatoes are great for that reason is that they will last for so, so long.
1: How do you go about starting your plants every year? Are you, like, cause you're in Canada, so, you know, you're either using a heated greenhouse or indoors under lights. Like, what is your method of starting seed?
2: Mm-hmm. We have a, um, a few different um, seed starting trays in our basement. We have heat mats, and then I start most of mine in plug trays.
0: Okay. And then
2: when they get to a certain size, um, I transplant them into bigger pots. I'm actually really excited because that time is about now. I'm going to be transplanting in a few days. But I go about doing that, and then I just need to wait, because once I transplant them out of the plug trays into the bigger pots, they need so much more space. And so I've been monitoring the temperature in my cold frames every night, and so once it finally gets warm enough that I can transplant and put them in there, then that will be the time. And it's hard, though. I've been trying to convince Dad to get a greenhouse for a really long (laughs) time, so...
1: See how it goes. You start watching my hydroponics videos and see how many you can start with that. Your dad will be sending me hate mail. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, um, so one of the things I've I did a ton of tomato varieties this year just to see if I can find something that gets over some of our blight issues. And I am using a flood and drain flood tray in a hydroponic system for this, and I can take like a half. a half ten tent uh, entry, so a half of a regular flat tray, um, and I can put about fifty plugs in there, and they okay. just kind of stand up because they're all. That's how they're just tight fit that way. And then you drop seed in, and the way I've kept track of, because you know I'm doing what you're doing now, when I'm doing that many varieties, like two or three of each variety. Yeah. Well, they're not in six packs. You can't individually label them. So basically, I built a spreadsheet and made a grid and like item 1-1 one, one is this, item 1-2 is that, you know, 2-2 two, two is this, <laughs> like that. How do you keep track of that many varieties so that you actually know what you're planning?
2: I write a lot of labels. What okay. I've been doing this year is I've been writing my labels beforehand. So okay. that it's not like write a label, plant five seeds. Write another label, plant five seeds. I just turn on some good music or the radio, and then I'll sit at my desk, and I'll write a couple hundred labels, and then I'll take a break, and then do some more the next night
1: that's, that's kind of what I do with the spreadsheet I built the spreadsheet and then planted according to it instead of like trying to backfill it because I did that last year and you get to the point where you're like screw it. And you just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you give up and go okay I put everything in and see what it looks like when it comes out <laughs> um, You mentioned you're gardening under um, a black walnut It's a juglone <laughs> species it's uh, it's an alleopathic species it, it you know it retards or prevents the growth of many different plants Some plants have adapted to grow in that space. Nightshades like tomatoes are not one of them. Uh, We had some black walnuts at our place in Pennsylvania. We kind of like the side of the garden that that was on. We grew stuff that they really didn't affect, and we grew tomatoes on the other side of the garden. How did you – you know, you don't have that kind of space like I did there. So how did you get to where you can garden under this, you know, this basically toxic to tomato tree – and not have, you know, bad problems and you get with with Juglone, you'll get like tomato not necessarily die, but it looks like eventually it dies. It looks like terminal blight sometimes, these weird growth and, and things that happen to it. How'd you overcome that?
2: Yeah, well before I got super tomato crazy, my dad was doing all the gardening and he was just growing tomatoes up in the front of our yard where the walnut tree doesn't affect anything that that is growing it. The roots and the drip line don't reach that far. And so that was the first thing that happened. And then I met Linda Crago and I went all tomato crazy. And I came home with all these tomato plants, started all these seeds and we were like, okay, what are we gonna do? So the first thing we did was we put straw bales on top of our back vegetable garden and this is where the juggling is in effect. And we thought, well, the roots probably won't go through this, um, won't go through the straw bales. And if we, if they do, we put some, um, down some, de- um, sorry, some compostable black plastic mulch. And so we were like, okay, these tomatoes should be able to grow. It should be great. We planted the tomatoes and then it was, we got a bit of harvest and then near the end of the season, they wilted, they died. And it was <laughs> because the roots had gone through the straw bales, and then they'd gone through the black plastic mulch. And so that was our first failure. The second failure was building a a raised bed under the drip line of the tree. So it got lots of sun, but still the roots couldn't touch the contaminated soil or else they'd die. And so we put down some landscape fabric. We put in uncontaminated soil, planted them, and then they died all over again. <laughs> <laughs> so that was failure number two. I mean, I was getting pretty sad at that point. I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And then I came home from school one day, and there were these massive um logs sitting on our driveway. They were like the size of telephone poles. It was kind of crazy, and I walked inside the door, and I rolled my eyes, and I'm like, Dad, what are you thinking this time? And so we ended up building raised beds out of them. And we also built them as sub-irrigation raised beds. And so the way that works is that you have a pool liner in the bottom which holds the water, and then the water wicks up through the soil, giving the plants a constant supply of water. So we had to water less, but that pool liner also stopped the roots from getting to the contaminated soil. So that was our overall success, and that's what we still use in the back garden today.
1: Is there any concern that eventually you'll get enough of like, uh, husks and leaves in the top of that bed, uh, to actually contaminate the, the division, you know, that, that stratification and do you guys do anything like, you know, pull the mulch off every year and start over or something like that to keep that from catching up to you?
2: Yeah, so far we've just been, um, pulling all the husks and leaves out hoping that they won't get stored in there, um. But eventually, I think we're going to have to change the soil, but that'll cost a lot. It'll be a ton of work. And yeah. so I'm thinking maybe this year over the winter, I'll put like a large maybe shower current in there. And then after the winter, I'll just pull it out. And then that way, we won't have any of that left in there. And so maybe I'll, I think I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start mulching more because I am um, I'm, I'm worried about that happening eventually.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of tarping things anyway over winter. Just, you You throw some sort of tarp down, like you said, a shower curtain, vapor plastic, anything like that. Uh, I do it for different reasons, but it would be helpful there as well. I do it because you start out the season with no weeds. I'll even do like, I'll water really big in the spring, an area I'm not going to plant for a little bit yet, get all the weeds to germinate, then throw a plastic over for two weeks. (laughs) and Everything dies, you know, and the seeds are all, the, the seed stock of weeds is all burnt out at that point. It's it's. It's a it's a useful tactic for more than one reason. Um, you have a book, too, right?
2: Yeah, I have a book about gardening with kids. It's called Gardening with Emma, and it's about different ways to get kids excited about the outdoors. So it has lots of fun projects and things to do to get kids excited and get their hands dirty.
1: And you you wrote that book when you were, like, nine?
2: Um. Well, actually, it started originally when I was nine with a book called okay. Grow Gardeners, and I self-published it with dad, and it was also about ways to get kids excited. And then my dad went to a publisher and said, do you want to reprint this? And they said, no, let's write another book. And so that's how okay. Garden of came about.
1: Okay, so that's a second book. So yeah. you're now 14, and you're a two-time author already. Yeah. It sounds like some people out there are slacking to me. We've got a lot of people in their 30s who have accomplished nothing. Uh, they might be able to learn a little bit uh, from, from looking at the efforts that you're making here. But I, I imagine what a lot of people would look at and see is a lot of work. You don't really see this so much as work. is more like following a passion.
2: No, I enjoy it. I love getting up in the morning, going out to the cold frames or down to my basement and checking on all my seedlings, um, trying to figure out what I'm going to grow, planting the garden, and then just being outside, planting um sometimes I even enjoy weeding if I'm going a bit crazy and I just need to be outside. Um it it pays off. I love it so much.
1: And, and you know, obviously you're like the next great tomato breeder or something waiting to happen, but I don't
0: know. I got
1: to I got to believe that you uh you are probably not only growing tomatoes or the other things you like to grow as well.
2: Yeah, but I grow pretty much everything you can think of. Um, the main problem I guess is the amount of space so I can't grow a ton of things like pumpkins or squash or big vining things like that but I try to grow a little bit of everything and I'm really interested in just growing lots of unusual crops so I grow lots of weird beans and peas I grow quite a few weird peppers as well Um, things I tried growing sesame last year which was kind of neat Ground cherries. Have you grown ground cherries before?
1: I have, yeah. They're, the Aunt Lollies, kind of- I think is the variety I've grown. They're like candy. They're like pineapple, oh, yeah. tomato, sugar, candy things. Those are amazing. Yeah. They also tend to come back. I don't know if your climate's a lot colder than mine, but like underneath where you grew one the year before, next year, there'll be t- 200 little ones and you kind of yeah. murder 198 of them and let two of them grow. You don't have to do any work.
2: Yeah, I'm actually excited because this year I found four different ground cherry varieties and I'm planning on sharing them as well.
1: That's... That's really cool. Like I said, I've only ever grown the one variety. I think I got it from Seed Savers Exchange or Baker Creek or something like that. So, yeah. And I, I, peppers are like a big thing with me. I'm on your side. I know she probably do some of that too. I mean, they're kind of a cousin to tomatoes anyway. And yeah. it, it's it's it, it is amazing to me. Do, do you think you know? You kind of mentioned about getting kids excited. Are there things that maybe parents could do? to get kids a little bit more into this, like maybe a different approach? Because some kids just are naturally going to be interested in it, like you were, like I was. You know, the old man just made me do it, and after I did it for a couple times, I'm like, oh, I like this. Like maybe there's some ways, like kids are pretty resistant to put down the, the, the computers and the tablets and all that. Like what can parents do to maybe make this a little more enticing?
2: Yeah, well, I think the first thing is doing exactly what our parents did to us is just getting us outside when we're young and making us realize that it's something that we enjoy and that it's fun to do and that it's um, something that we should be doing. And so I think that's the best way is to get kids outside when they're young. But if your kids are older or maybe they're not showing any interest in that, kids like to eat, and they like to eat delicious things, fun things. So things like tomatoes, which I find a lot of kids love, kids, if they haven't had them, will fall in love with ground cherries, I think. Um, things like cucamelons, which are um, like little mini cucumbers that look like watermelons with a hint of citrus um, as their flavor. Um, things like that, I think, will get kids excited as well. So them seeing where the food comes from and then being the ones to cook with it after and enjoy it will get them excited.
1: Well, very cool. This has been a great conversation. Again, I think, like I said, some people out there that make excuses instead of results should probably take a look at what you've done already at 14, and I bet we have more to see coming. I'm pretty sure that two books will not be the limit of books that you write in your life. And uh, so people can learn more about you. Where where can they go online to learn more about what you're doing?
2: They can take a look at my website, which is emmabiggs.ca, And then if they want to follow what I've been doing most recently, they can find me on Instagram, and my handle is Biggs underscore grows, and I just try to post about all the things I've been up to, so things like my straw bale garden, my cold frames, which I just built, all my seeding, and so that's where you can find the most recent updates.
1: Well, very cool. I'll make sure that uh, all of that stuff is also included in the show notes for today's episode. Uh, along with links to where people can get your book, uh, follow you on Instagram, etc. And Emma, thank you for being with us today at the Survival Podcast.
2: Thank you so much. I had a great time talking to you.
1: Well, what a fantastic interview, and what a fantastic young woman. Uh, definitely check out her website. She actually sells seeds. I imagine y'all could probably clean her out pretty quick. She has a limited variety. sends kind of like a sampler pack of some pretty cool seeds. And she's got her two books available. Um, just fantastic, definitely worthy of your support and you know follow her on Instagram and uh, see all the stuff she's doing and, and let me just say honestly, like again, some of y'all I'm gonna this i'm gonna that i'm gonna this. y'all ain't got no excuses right? Eh? this guy's fourteen years old she's been going strong at this for like i don't know five six years now. She wrote her first book when she was nine years old. I mean, come on now. Y'all, if you're going to write, get your book written. You're going to put a garden, get your garden, you're going to get your homestead up and running, get it going, make it happen. Uh, if Emma can do all the things she's done at the age of 14, you ain't got no excuses. Get on it. Uh, with that, we did have kind of a shorter show today, and I wanted to talk to you about something that I discovered. I, I have a video. I haven't uploaded it yet, but I'll upload it as soon as I finish this segment and get, uh, get the show, uh, going. I found a resource today when it comes to taking a look at the overall curve of the infection rate of COVID-19. And it's incredibly encouraging, and it makes me wonder why no one's talking about it. I was on the Weather Channel, and uh, with some very few exceptions, and they seem to correct. It's like you can move things a week forward or a week backward, and they all align from coast to coast. No matter when COVID started, no, va- no matter when restrictions were put in place... No matter how many restrictions were put in place, no matter how many restrictions were not put in place, what if I told you from California to Florida to Texas to New York to Michigan to Wisconsin to Ohio and every place in between, it pretty much all looks the same. You'd tell me I'm crazy because so-and-so has more and there's people dying here and they're not dying there. No, but the pattern looks the same. And the pattern is, and this is going back about two weeks People were screaming, it's doubling every three days. It really never sustained that for any length of time. But it basically, where we had almost every place it was, from, again, New York to Los Angeles to Dallas, Texas, here, everywhere, the, the numbers about, let's say about two weeks ago, were doubling about every four to five days. And once they completed that four to five day double, it took them about seven to eight days to double the next time. And then they flattened. And this is cumulative, not new cases. You know, all the graphs they show you are the new cases, and you're really seeing the curve there hard. Well, this is cumulative, and unfortunately it doesn't include the recoveries, because you'd see it a lot harder. I'm telling you, I I started to skip. I took the 15 biggest cities in the country, and I, I, I put them through this analysis in this video. And it almost gets boring, like, Looks like, okay, class, let's count. How long does it take to double? One, two, three, four. Uh, Not quite this one. Five. Okay, five days. Let's do it again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, not quite the eight. There it is. And then you try to make it through the rest, and, of course, it ends because it's only showing you about two weeks' worth. But you realize really quick, like, you know, you're on there four or five days, and it's not even close to reaching its next double, that it's petered out. Now, what that what makes that interesting? That doesn't mean it's all over, don't worry about it, forget it, never mind, we're all going back to work tomorrow and send the kids back to school next week. It doesn't mean that. What it means is, I think that the amount that we've actually impacted this virus through social distancing and restrictions is very minimal. I know that's hard to believe. I know that's hard to believe, but what have I been saying from the beginning? The denominator is much bigger than we think it is. I'm telling you the denominator, depending on where you go, is 5 to 20 times as big. And for those who are not familiar with the term denominator, I'm talking about the total number of cases that exist. And we have a half a million cases in the United States. Bull. Bull squat. Okay? So we had a kid on today, I'm going to keep it nice and G-rated, but bull squat. No, we do not have a half a million cases. We know that a huge number, one of the things they tell us a problem is a huge number of the cases are asymptomatic, meaning the person gets infected, they don't even get a sniffle, they have no idea they have this virus at all. How would you ever find that person unless you started mass testing everyone? And the answer is you wouldn't. We know that another huge portion of the cases are so mild in symptoms That even if you ask to be tested, they tell you to go home and stay home and don't worry about it. Then we know a huge portion of them that we test and test positive still have very, very mild symptoms. And then we have the rest of the field, which is everybody that we talk about, which are people with significant symptoms all the way up to and including hospitalization, ventilation, and unfortunately for some small portion, death. We know all that's true. That must mean that the denominator is really, really big. I also think that we're learning more and more about the origins of this, and we're finding out that it was probably in the United States in 2019, maybe well before December. Some people say, how could that possibly be the case? Well, when you look at this video, if you understand everything I just said, and you look at the pattern, you may start to realize that it's that very denominator. As I've said from the beginning on this, you have to look at COVID like an iceberg, and the 500,000 cases you see are the part of the iceberg sitting up over top of the ocean that you're able to see. And in an iceberg, the size of the iceberg is generally about nine, nine times as much of the iceberg is below the water than you see above the water. Now, there's no reason to believe that's the exact number for COVID, but there's something like that. The part under the water is much bigger than the part above the water. The question is, is it, is it 4x, 5x, 6x, 10x, 9x, 20x? We don't know. But to have something like New York happen, if that iceberg is a 10x iceberg, then right now that means that we have had about 2 million cases of COVID in New York City. 2 million. Not 200,000. 2 million. In New York, I'm sorry, New York State. But most of it in the New York City and surrounding area. Two million, It took 2 million cases to see 200,000 to see X number of deaths. And when you look at this pattern, I'm telling you, if you watch this video, share this video with your friends, I think that you're going to see that that seems more likely than not. Because why would a place like Tarrant County... That only has you know a few hundred cases and you know a couple dozen deaths look in ratio and in and in pattern like New York City. Why would they look the same in about the same timing, off by only a couple days of each other, if what we were told, which is we're kind of seeing the majority of it here, there might be some we don't see, but we pretty much know how much. See, it doesn't make any sense that way. But if it takes a massive infection rate to see that tip come up, and then if we allow some variances, there's a report out today. You know what the number one, and I told you this a month and a half ago. I told you this when I said to focus on your health. The number one underlying health condition slash comorbidity that that results in hospitalization and or death from coronavirus other than age, obesity, weight. So if you're old and fat, you are a lot more likely to end up in the hospital with COVID than if you are not old and not fat. And if you are one or the other, that's one thing. But when you're both, the propensity goes up. Want to bet there's a lot more old, obese people in New York than are old, obese people in Dallas-Fort Worth? I don't know that, but I'm going to bet that's the case. That's the case. And I think we're, we're about to see the massive turn of the curve. And I think all of the government officials are going to take credit for it. And instead of the people that really deserve the credit, which are the people that have been working in the hospital saving lives. And the people that have been going out in spite of all the fear risking their lives, at least in their minds anyway, by stocking shelves and making sure you can buy food. And driving trucks and making sure stuff gets where it needs to go. They're the ones that should get the credit and all the researchers that have pushed for the therapies that are helping. All of those people deserve credit. Government might have messed the whole thing up. They might have taken the entire wrong approach to this. Maybe protection, social distance, etc. was a good idea, but maybe locking down the economy was the biggest screw-up in the history of the United States of America. It could be the case, that that is true. And these patterns... To indicate it. So I, I really encourage you to take a look at this. I know that doesn't have anything to do with the show that we uh, had today, but it is one of the most significant things that I've discovered since starting my research into this. And what I want to point out is nothing that you'll see in that video has anything to do with any wishful thinking or perception bias. It's just counting in numbers and patterns. They're either there or they're not there. And boy, I'd like to see the ability to do what I do in that video by city and state with new cases versus just um, cumulative. And I'd like to see the cumulative less the new new recoveries because I think that would really give us a pattern. Anyway, take a look at that video. I'll make sure that it is in the show notes for you today. Now, uh, With that, remember, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping where? Tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, Tspaz.com. You know what I think would be a cool thing to do right now? Make some mead. Not to drink next week, to like maybe drink next year or maybe drink this holiday season. And I know a lot of your fruits are not available right now. For meads, you know, your fruits are coming a little later for your earliest fruits in the south. But, you know, your fruits are generally summer into fall. So all your melamoles, your fruit meads, you know, that's that's where you want to go there. But you know what is becoming really abundant right now across the United States? Berries. A lot of places, blackberries, blueberries, wild strawberry, mulberry and stuff is either going to be right now or very soon. But more, the first stuff that's available every year is the herbs. Herbs and wildflowers. Maybe it'd be a good time of year to make some spring meads from some of these wildflowers and herbs and uh, your, your methylogens, right? And then kind of anchor that tradition of that new mead. Just crazy as it sounds, the, the, the COVID pandemic of 2020. I think some of our, our real, you know, it's hard to see that when you're in the middle of it, but when a, a lot of the family traditions, That I learned about a lot of religious traditions that I learned about um, coming up with both Catholic grandparents and Eastern Orthodox actually Ukrainian Catholic, which is weird. It's like the Catholic Church is sort of mangled with the Eastern Orthodox faith, but they're not and it's weird and it's a sect and the Pope is cool, but he's not necessarily it's, it's weird. I'll just leave it at that. It's kind of like Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Judaism crammed together. Uh, that's what Ukrainian Catholic is like. Um, a lot of the religious traditions anchored way back before any of my family was around, uh, in, in in hardships there. But even a lot of the family traditions would go back to stories about the Depression and things like that, and they were quite fond, uh, today, you know, in, in the 1970s and 80s when I was a kid. We look forward to them. Some of the things with certain ways that certain donuts were made and stuff like that. Around Lent, went back to stories about, well, this is what we could do to end Lent with because we didn't you know, all go out and have a great big steak dinner at the end of Lent back then because we couldn't afford to. And some real fun things. And it just got me thinking today that maybe, so what does this have to do with T-SPAS and item of the day and all? Well, my my mead blend of yeast, of Red Star uh, Cuvée, uh, and Red Star Pastor Blanc is the item of the day. And, and you can find that on the website at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You can always find it under the Brewing Inventing category at t Uh And, of course, if you want to get an email every day with all the new stuff on the blog, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on subscribe, fill out a form. And remember, I'll never share your information. But above all, remember, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspas.com. And also, remember that you can always help us out by becoming a member Twenty-five bucks a year right now for a fifty-dollar membership, half off. Discount code is twenty-five, 25 bucks, 25 c k s. Please consider becoming a member. Uh, I mean, there's not going to be another twenty-five-dollar sale this year. I screwed up. I said it, and as soon as I said it, I said, well, "Why did I say that?" And I thought about editing it out, and I didn't. And once it went out, it was it's law, right? If I promise y'all something, it's going to happen. And that is until the national lockdown ends. I'm keeping the twenty-five-dollar sale. That's a lot of days of twenty-five-dollar sale. Um, this membership pays for itself at fifty bucks at twenty five it really pays for itself. heard from a couple people the last couple days about military discount. I give you guys a discount if you 're in the military law enforcement et cetera 7 twenty four seven three sixty five it's you're available. This sells better than that so i 've said just just take the twenty five dollar discount. Uh, it's annual It applies to recurring. It's as good a deal as I've ever done, ever. And I'll never do, I'll, I'll never go lower than that, guys. I promise you that, too. Anyway, do consider becoming a member. Get on the Daily Mail and uh, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And again, get by Emma's website. Uh, again, her website is Emma Biggs, E M M A B I G G S dot C A for Canada. Emma Biggs.ca, links in the show notes to all her stuff. And with that, let's go ahead and talk about our song of the day. As I said, I, I broke from the pattern today and decided that I would, uh, or broke from the pattern this week, and I decided to do a week of Jimmy Buffett songs. And uh, I did that because I think we could use some happiness right now. I really do. Um, there's so much gloom and doom in the air, and, you know, for once there's actually... I think the gloom and doom is overplayed, but at least there's something gloomy and doomy that's really gloomy and doomy to 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 make worse than it is, to make you feel even worse than you should. And so, to me, music is one of those things that can always make us feel a little bit better. And I tend to really feel good when I'm sitting on my back porch on a nice sunny day like we had this weekend and drinking a really good margarita and listening to some Jimmy Buffett. And so. Again, I've tried to get this week to be some songs that you probably haven't heard. So these are five songs by Jimmy Buffett you probably haven't heard. I'm not going to say you haven't heard, because some of you are as big a fan as I am. And again, I might have played one of these on the air. I'm not sure uh, once before. This today's song is called Sending the Old Man Home. And it's about the nostalgia and bittersweet happiness of an admiral retiring after World War II in the liner notes to Bars, Beaches, Boats, and Ballads box set, which is, if you're a Buffett fan you don't own that, I don't know what's wrong with you, uh, but Jimmy said the ideas in the song came to him while he was laid up with his third broken leg watching in a painkiller haze the movie The Gallant Hours with James Cagney as Admiral Bull Halesley. He kept flashing between the movie and memories of his grandfather and the Officers Club at Pearl Harbor. And to me, this song kind of talks about nostalgia directly the way that Jimmy was talking about it there, but it also talks about how everything eventually ends and new things start because the Admirals Club gets torn torn down and basically all of the people from this man's generation eventually disappear and he and his stories are largely forgotten. But just like I talked about yesterday with If I Could Just Get It On Paper, this song's about the fact that everybody has a great story. In fact, many great stories. Fascinating stories. Um, Jimmy Buffett's music is a mixture of of stories that, that conjure up the lives of people like Ernest Hemingway, but they also conjure up the memories of a friend that was a smuggler of drugs and memories of an old wino down in New Orleans that he barely even remembers the first name of. And that's because Jimmy Buffett is one of those singer-songwriter-poets that understands that every story or every life is made up of amazing, fascinating, great stories. And in the end, for most of us, the stories will end and will be forgotten. But the things that we do are what live beyond us. And even if they, people don't know in the future that it came from us, you know what? Things like teaching a kid to plant a garden, And the way that can infect one generation to the next over and over and over again are one of the ways you can leave that kind of legacy of your fascinating story, even if eventually when you're an old man or old lady and all the old men and old lady around you are gone as well and the kids that you barely knew when you passed because they were just born are now old ladies and old men and they don't remember your name, your legacy can live on. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
0: They're sending the old man home Back with the buffalo roam. Out in the Pacific They say he was the best now he's in his city Heading home like all the rest He'll never forget Rosalie Her sleepless nights he fought upon the sea He'll only have the memories are great books by James because 'cause they're, they're sending, sending the old man home. Far away, far away, far away, far away, far away. Far away. another life so very.